something tragic will occur. Uh, I was noticing last week I don't smile while it's teeing itself up, and so I look all this, I'm frowning and staring, and so I'm smiling, see, smiling, here we go, all right. I think we're good. Well, open your Bibles, if you will, to James chapter 5. This is the ninth in our series of James to the Twelve. And uh, I'm excited to finish it off where James ends it off. I entitled it Four Spotlights. Four Spotlights. You know, last week we talked about two flashing warning lights. Two flashing warning lights. One, preparing without God. And the other one was the whole issue of how we deal with wealth and money. And this week there are four things that James, in a very practical way, which is his thing, he, uh, he uh, takes the, the uh, spotlight and goes from item to item to item to item to finish off his, his letter, or as we would call it, the epistle. Um, he, wants, he wants to make sure that we get underscored, highlighted, yellow highlighter, four specific things as he finishes off his letter to the scattered tribes all over the then known world. Um, I was trying to think of uh, an illustration of this idea of, of, of highlighting something important and it, it drug a memory up for me. When I was uh, coming out of college the end of my second year, I was in Europe and I had lived away from home since the middle of my uh, senior year in high school and I was headed home the only times I'd been there during the other two and a half years were vacations, but I was headed home and, and we were gonna fly back to the United States. Dad was gonna be gone for a while and, and I was really, really, really not looking forward to being back at home. And um, I, it was during a period of my time when my mom and I were, to say we were strained would be to put it mildly. And it was just a very you know dark and gosh, out of, Two and a half years of living in Europe as a, as a young person and, and having all of the freedoms and joys associated with that. And then, oh, I got to go back and live in the house. My dad and I kind of cut a deal that while he was gone, I'd stay with, with mom and, and the two boys. At any rate, I, I was flying back from, from Munich and I landed in London. And to my surprise, my father met the plane. It was a military plane. And normally I'd just get off the plane, get on the train, go down to where we lived. And he met me and he said, I thought we'd spend a day in, in London together. I was like, whoa, this is neat. This is cool. I like this. And we spent the afternoon wandering around in London. And then he took me to dinner. And I, and I can remember, I don't remember so much about the day as I do the conversation at the dinner. And really what my dad was doing was getting a spotlight out. And he, and he was spotlighting in my own character, in my own life, some things that, that, that he needed me to get on board with before I took the train and, and went on home and, and ended up spending the next seven or eight months with my mom. He, he, he really wanted to under, you gotta do this. You gotta have this attitude. This, this one ain't gonna work. And, and he did it in a very loving and, and reasonable way and he was absolutely right if we were gonna live in the same house and I was gonna show respect that I should and so on and so on. These highlighted things were important for him to, to bring to my attention. That's the picture I have of, of James here. He's finishing his letter off and he goes, guys, let me just make sure that you don't miss this. There are four things that I, I just, ooh, you gotta get. Now he shifted his tone a little 
If you're in the book of James, which I hope you are by now, and we're going to look at uh, chapter 5, verses 7 and following. So chapter 5, starting in verse number 7, he, he's, you're going to see that he uses the term brothers over and over again. Uh, four or five times he refers to them as brothers and sisters. Right there in verse 7, be patient in brothers and sisters. And he jumps out and, and jumps out and uses that term over and over again. He's softening up his tone a little. I've kind of nailed you a few times in this letter. I've, I've really gotten down and dirty with you on a few things. I, I got in your face on a few items. And, and now he's back and not backing off, but, but, but sweetening it up a little, making it a little bit of softer response, or not response, a softer uh, impact in, in his discussion. And he's going to set a context for everything he's going to say. When my dad had that conversation with me, I remember that the context was, Sherry, I, I realize this and this and this is going on between you and your mom, and that's not good. But the context here is, um, she's your mother. I need you to stay with her and care for your brothers while I'm gone. Can you do it? That was the context. It wasn't a berating. It wasn't a haranguing. It wasn't a whatever. It was appealing to me, you know, as an adult to think this through, and this could be a good thing. And I think that's really what James is doing. He's calling them brothers and sisters, and then he's going to give it a context. The context is in light of the coming of the Lord. In verse 7, be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. He sets a context. Uh, the context being in light of the Lord's return. Now, um, I, I, I personally think that we don't hear enough about the Lord's return in our Bible studies in our churches. Uh, I'm not sure why. I'm not sure why it isn't preached more or taught more. But your Bible is stuffed, particularly the New Testament, in a very clear way with all kinds of teaching about the Lord intends to return. And I put in your notes just to remember that, that um, the Lord came the first time as a baby. So the whole Testament is leading up to the fact that the Messiah was promised and he was going to come. And lo and behold, in, in Luke chapter 2, the baby arrives. The Messiah has been born. Kind of, kind of stage one of his return. But there's a stage two, and, and, and the stage two actually has two parts to it. At least as, as, I, re, as I review and see the, the book of, of Revelation and others. I think stage one is he's going to return in the clouds and call his people to himself. That would be called the rapture. And stage two of the second stages is the fact that he's going to return as the head of the army on the day of the battle of Armageddon and stomp his foot on the Mount of Olives and claim his place as Lord of all. In light of the Lord's return over and over again in the book of Matthew, and I gave you like five or six references, um, and then in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians, over and over again, uh, the writers of the New Testament say, in light of the Lord's return, in light of the fact that this is not all there is, in light of the fact that he is going to make it right, here's some things that you should pay attention to. Here's some things you should do. Here's some things you should know. So he's going to appeal to four things. I, I believe James is, is going to get on us about four specific things. One, patience particularly our patience when we're under trial. We'll talk about that in a moment. He's going to hit us about reverence. If, uh, if I were to pick a topic that is not true about our current culture, it would be reverent. Our children are not taught reverence. There's no built-in reverence for adults 
or built-in reverence for those in authority. They have to earn it. And if they don't earn it in the way that we think that they should, we don't give it. How many times as a child did I hear things like, you respect the office, not the person in it? I mean, even politically growing up with the arguments that we used to have at the dinner table, my father would not allow us to not give respect and reverence to people in authority just simply because they wore the badge or they were whatever. I'm not saying that all of them are good or that they all deserve uh, undying, unquestioning uh, respect. But I am saying that there is a reverence that's missing in our culture. Reverence for older people. Um, you know, how many times as a child did I get thumped if I didn't grab a, a, a door or help someone that was older than me? My dad would, go help her, go help him, get, get, get that door. My brothers, you know, bound into their little heads about how there was to be respect for older people. And then for women, reverence for women. The, the reverence theme could go on and on and on. Our culture doesn't have much. James is going to make a big deal about it, especially as it relates to the Lord's name. The third thing he's going to hit us with is the necessity for prayer to be a, a central part of every part of our lives. He's going to talk about prayer. And then he's going to end it with a very compassionate plea to be diligent in service with other people. And then he's going to close off his book. So let's, let's dive in. The first theme, the thing that he is going to, to come back around to is patience. He's already talked to us about it, actually. Look in chapter 1 of James, and down in about verse number 12, I think it is. Yep. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because... Having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. He's already opened the door for a, a full conversation about patience. I wonder why it was such a theme for him. I was uh, thinking about this uh, earlier. As the half-brother of Jesus, I wonder if he saw in the life of Jesus a patient man, a patient young man, a, a patient child. As he grew up, I wonder if there was some specific illustrations in the life of his half brother that he took to heart. But he he is interested in teaching those that will pay attention to him how how necessary it is to be patient people. I was writing a, a musing not too long ago about my lack of patience. I am not by nature a patient person. I want it and I want it now, and I don't want to hear any excuses why we can't have it now. I, it's just a, a part of my sinful nature. He, he's talking about patience, though, specifically as a, as a capacity to accept and, and to tolerate delay or, or, or trouble, to, to accept it or, or, or to tolerate it. The, the level of our tolerance for delay, you know, some people just go with the flow. Others, down where I am, you know, very little tolerance. Tolerance for delay, tolerance for any kind of trouble. We've talked about this before. You walk out and your garage door uh, opener doesn't work. And the first thing you're probably going to say is the thing that I said the last time my garage door didn't open. This is a terrible day for this to happen. Well, what's a good day for it to happen? You're going to pencil it in? You know, you're going to get your calendar out? All right, next, next Wednesday is a good day. The, the ability, the, the capacity to accept and to tolerate delay or trouble 
is a great definition of patience. And, and the ability to suffer it without anger, without responding, without selfishly saying, well, it affects me. It's all about me. You know, um, what my, uh, my friend Barb and I have a, a thing going about people who run red lights. And uh, I, I, I'm counting them, we give them scorecards as to how you know, how, how many seconds go by, then they're still running it. They're, you know, my green is going 1,001, 1,002, 1,003. I've got to 1,004 uh, before the cars have uh, gone through the intersection. On a couple of occasions, it was very close that they would have nailed me. And now I never enter an intersection without waiting. I will not, when the light changes, I do this. So you're going to say that? Okay, great. How about you over there? Okay, now I'm going. This business about the ability to... To, to suffer without anger, to hold back, to, to be patient, to wait and see. James is going to use two uh, Greek words for us. One uh, is in verse 7 of chapter 5, right where we started, be patient then. And that word is a big old word, uh, macrothymesate. It just means be long-suffering. Take a hit, take another hit, take another hit, take another hit. Bob and weave. You hit the one side, turn your head. What is... Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount, slap this side, turn your head, let them slap that side. It's the long-sufferingness. It's the opposite of keeping an emotional score. Don't we all do that? This is the third time this week I've had to pick up his socks. Right? Or the twelfth time she said that. Or this is, this is just like her. Every time she... Long-suffering is the opposite of that. It's the ability to let the water just roll off the back. It's the duck that goes quack, quack. Who cares? He's saying, be patient then until the Lord's coming. This is an attitude adjustment. And then down in verse number 11, he grabs another word. Look at verse number 11. He says, as you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. Different word. Somebody on Facebook, I'm not sure who was that. Was that you, Mona? Somebody made a remark on Facebook this week about how I love this word, hupomeneo. And I do. It's just such a cool word to say. Hupo Medeo. It just rolls around there perfectly. But it really literally means to remain under. To tuck yourself like, like if, you had a, if you put yourself under a table and you reared up your shoulders and you were able to hold it. That's Hupo Medeo. You can And you can remain that way. Eh, no big deal. Just stay there. I got it. I got it. I got it. That's the, the way we get the, the term perseverance. There's a slight difference between long-suffering and endurance. And, and, and in both cases, what James is saying, we need to be, in a very practical way, patient people. Patient with spouses, patient with children, patient with, with employees, patient with people in our neighborhoods, extended family, people we do business with, patient people. He gives three examples in our text of, of kinds of people, three illustrations of, of, of situations or people that demonstrated great patience. And the first one he chooses is farmers. Now, I don't know anything about farming. I, zero. When I drive around, especially from here to San Francisco and you go through the Central Valley, I think they should require every farmer to put signs out in front of their uh, orchards or whatever it is. So I know what that is. What, is that strawberries? I don't know. It's green. No, it's on a tree. Can't be a strawberry. Uh, what is, is it? Ammons? Ammons. I don't know. A guy used to teach me that that's how you said almonds, almonds. Is it almond tree? I don't know. Are, 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 you see the little purple flowers? Are, are, does it, are those purple flowers? Oh, they, are, they need signs up. This is what this is. 
I, I, I've told you the story before. I've planted two things in my life. One was radish seeds, and, and, and I went out to, to look and, and declared we didn't get anything because I didn't know they were roots and under the soil, and my friend sent me back out, and lo and behold, there were radishes there, but I, I didn't know that. And the other thing is I planted tomatoes. Brianna and I did when she was little, but the big old wormy guys with the in their head appeared, and neither one of us would touch them anymore. So I know nothing about farming, but 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 James is going to say, hey, here's an illustration about it. Here's something you're going to you you know you can take away, you can get out of it. So in in verse uh, seven again, he says, see how the farmer wa uh, waits for the Lord or excuse me, see how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. Okay, you too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. So his first example of, of patience is a farmer. Stand firm, plant your feet, fix yourself firmly as you wait. And he says they're waiting for the early rains and the late rains. So there's a time period when it's supposed to rain, and everybody knows it, and that's great, and there it is, there's the rain. But the patient person is waiting for it when it's not supposed to come, when you really hope it does, the fall rains and the early rains. He's using them as an illustration. And he says, and don't grumble. Quit blaming your troubles on, on one another. And, and, and the idea of groaning here, stop the groaning part. The groaning is that deep, heavy sigh. And you, we've all done it, and it's usually accompanied with a bit of a look. Translated, there you go again. How many times are you going to do this? How many times do I have to? Are we going to? Uh, uh, that's what it is. James is saying, wait a minute, cut it out. The believer needs to be a person who's developing a sense of patience. And remember, the, the context was, waiting for the Lord's return. The second illustration he gives is the prophets themselves. I'm back in the text on verse number, let's see, 10. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience uh, in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Turn in your Bibles back just a couple of pages to um, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. James is making reference to the, to the people that are outlined in, James, in Hebrews chapter 11. We call this the hall of faith or, or the hall of fame. Those who, who had incredible faith uh, and, and are exampled for us. And there are very specific ones called out. Abraham, Noah, uh, Moses, and so on. But, but look down in about verse 39. Whole list of people, whole list of characteristics of them, things that happened. Well, let me, let me start... Um, uh, verse 33, he says, all of these who through faith, they conquered kingdoms, they administered uh, justice, they gained what was promised, they, they shut the mouths of lions, they quenched the fury of flames, they escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies, women received back their dead, raised to life, there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, 
persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. Yet, and here's our patience part, none of them received what had been promised to them. They all did it patiently. They didn't get the reward yet. They didn't get the attaboy or good job or, or here's, here's the, the, the prize that, that you might have been working for. All of those heroes that are outlined for us in Hebrews 11 didn't yet get the prize, and yet they're an example of patience. Do you know how long the prophets preached and taught? I did a little bit of a, a look around. Jeremiah preached for over 40 years. 40 years. And they treated him like dirt. Um, Isaiah, 64 years of public ministry. 64 years. And treated very, very poorly. Daniel, whom you know stories about, including getting thrown into a, a, a den with lions, he was uh, a minister and, and involved in ministry for over 80 years. And they did so with patience. With patience. James uses the prophets as an example. And then he uses Job himself. Job himself. In Job chapter 1, after the bottom has fallen out of Job's life, and I, I won't steal the punchlines, you need to read the book of Job. Uh, and try to read it in one setting so you can go from chapter 1 to the very last chapter. Because you're going to get bogged down in the middle uh, with his buddies giving him advice. I put that in quotes. But, but read the whole book in one setting. But what's amazing is his attitude. This is what he says when the bottom falls out. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, I didn't say that when my garage door opener wouldn't open. I didn't walk out there and say... Well, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I didn't do that. Nor am I inclined to do that in other times of stress and difficulties. And yet that's what James is saying. This is one of his spotlights. Guys develop patience. Let's go on to the second spotlight. Verse number 12 of, of back in James chapter 5. Verse number 12. He says this. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Now, you and I know, having just studied the book of James, that James is on a, on a, on a kick of talking about the tongue, how we communicate over and over again. Turn back to chapter 1. Let's just kind of tiptoe through here. Look at verse, chapter 1, verse number 19. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Slow to speak. That's the first time he hits us. Look at verse 26. Those who consider themselves religious and do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves. Turn to chapter 3. The first 12 verses are all about taming the tongue. Chapter 4, look at verse number 11. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or a sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but you're sitting in judgment on it. In other words, stop it. Stop judging everybody around you. 
Keep going, chapter 5, verse number 9. We just went by it uh, kind of quickly in, in another context, but look, look at uh, verse 9. Do not grumble against one another. He, he spends a lot of time talking about this tongue. He really, he really is focused on us watching what comes out of our mouth. And now specifically in verse number 12 of chapter 5, he wants to talk about misusing the Lord's name or, or not keeping an oath. The whole idea of having crude speech. I divided it into those three sections because, because it's really easy for us to say, oh, well, I, I never use the Lord's name in vain. Okay. But there are lots of other ways to violate this, this commandment. In Exodus chapter 20, verse number 7, one of the Ten Commandments, you shall not uh, misuse or take the Lord's name in vain, uh, for God will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. His name is to have reverence. I went looking. Uh, I wanted to see if there were any stats about, about how we use our language. Specifically, how many times a day we might use curse words. And curse words would be a wide variety of words name in vain and right on through just crude and, and, and horrible kinds of things. Do you realize that they, the, the guys who do this for a living, they say that on average an American curses one way or another 80 to 90 times a day. That, that about five, five, one half of 1%, 0.5% of our speech is some sort of cursing. Well, I don't live in that world. I live with you guys, and you, I don't know, maybe you say something every now and then, but you usually don't do it when I'm around, and I, I, I'm not going to do it when you're around. So our culture kind of probably is not on that scale. But his point is we misuse the Lord's name. We, are, we ascribe to him things that are not true and don't ascribe to him things that are true. We have to be careful about the name of Yahweh. Yahweh is the is the name that, that the Old Testament gave for, for God Almighty. And do you realize that when the, when the scribes came to, to copy a, a book in the Old Testament, when they came to the name Yahweh, they would stop, put their pen down, and go take a full bath and come back, and then we would write the name. They wouldn't even write it. And in, in language, the Hebrew people do not say the name of the Lord. They say a substitute. And when they're writing it out in a commentary, even today, if you go on the internet and, and find a Jewish writer and he's referring to God, what you'll see on your, on your text, on your, on your screen, is G-D. They won't put an O in there. They won't type it out. But in our culture, we just are so flippant about him. James says, don't do that. Reverence is required. And then he talks a little bit about that your yea be yea and your nay nay. Now he's talking about oaths. In the Old Testament, they didn't have attorneys. They didn't have uh, contracts. They had oaths. They looked at each other and gave their word. And sometimes there was a physical sign of, of that oath. Um, if you remember when Boaz is, is making his deal uh, to take care of Ruth and, and, and to give a piece of, uh, or not give, to take responsibilities for his uh, kinsman, uh, and, and he's going to become a kinsman redeemer, long story. But to, to demonstrate this, this legal transaction that's happened, he takes his shoe off, and they exchange shoes. Sometimes they did a blood covenant. Sometimes they did it with salt. 
But, but the idea was that if an oath was given, it was a big deal. We treat oaths very lightly. I'll meet you Tuesday, unless something better comes up. I'll be there by 9. You know I'm never on time. I'd be, I'd be happy to take care of that. Oh, did I forget? I put down two things that I think James would say to us. First off, if we, if we give an oath, we should keep it. Period. Come heck in high water. You give an oath, you say you'll do something, you ought to do it. Period. It's an oath. Numbers 30 says, When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word but must do everything he said. Period. You tell your kids you're going to do something, you do it. Now, are there exceptions? Of course. But you go in advance and you make up for it and you fix it and you, and you do better. But you keep your word. A person's word used to matter. If somebody said something to you, that was good enough. A handshake was just the seal of a, of a person's word. Oath, and then crude speech. Um, Colossians chapter 3, verse number 8 says, You must rid yourself of all such things. And it gives a whole list. And in the middle of the things that we're supposed to rid, he puts in filthy language. Get rid of it. Ephesians 5, 4. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place. But rather, thanksgiving should be there. Gratitude. Paul's just saying there's no place for crude speech. And you know what? We, we, we as a culture often ascribe that to men. But I have been, you know, in situations, circles, wandering around, listening, uh, sometimes to some very crude language from, from women. Not too long ago, I walked into a restaurant, and as I was going to my table, I heard, I don't know, really bad stuff. And it was just two South County soccer moms having lunch with a very free What James is saying, wait a minute, guys, spotlight, there needs to be reverence. What comes out of here, we ought to be very careful we don't misuse the Lord's name in any way. That we don't take oaths and, and not follow through and, and that we watch our crude speech. And by the way, all the euphemisms that we, we throw in there so we don't want to say the actual word. Uh, I, again, poking around looking for stats, I, I discovered that there were 144 euphemisms for the F word in a, in a particular kind of dictionary. People have figured out how to, how to twist it around so you don't actually say that word, but you say something kind of close to it. Uh, I, I've told the kids uh, here at school that the, the, there's a whole variety of words that we use in place of other uh, curse words or coarse words. James is saying, hey, clean up your mouth. Figure out how to say something else. Let your yes be yes, your no, no, and that's enough. He's giving us a third spotlight, and he calls it prayerfulness. Look at verse 13. Verse 13. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let him pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, they will be forgiven. 
Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And then he's going to give an example of, of Elijah. Let me hold off on Elijah for a moment. When, when are we supposed to pray? At all times. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse number 18 says, Pray without ceasing. And I've had kids at school say, how are we supposed to do that in this world? We've got to go to class, we've got to do our homework, we've got to play soccer. We gotta, how are we supposed to pray without ceasing? He's not saying that, you know, your eyes are closed and your hands are folded and in Jesus' name you're talking to him. He's saying it's like a default button. Like you're a computer and you have a default button. When nothing else is going on, it defaults to that. It's the default in the heart of the believer. That given a moment of, of, of peace or calm or lack of activity, when we're not talking or we're not doing something specific that's demanding 100% of our attention, we default to prayer. That we have a list of things that are important for us in prayer. Starting with just gratitude. Starting with praise for who he is. And then moving to requests for others or for ourselves. But it's a default. It's an automatic. It's a, I'm going there. John Calvin once said, there is no time in which God does not invite us to himself. Driving the car, in the shower, fixing lunches, having a conversation with a friend on, on the telephone. You're sharing some need or about someone else. Why not just stop and pray about it? Pray about it with a friend on the phone. Pray about it in, in your home if you have other people there. Pray by yourself. Pray, pray at all times about a whole list of things. In times of suffering, we pray. In times of, of great joy, we pray. In times of sickness, we pray. Psalm 34, verse number 1 says, I will extol, I will praise the Lord at all times. His praise will forever be on my lips. It's there. It's right there. It's so, it's so familiar to me. It's such a focus. It's such a time, uh, not a time, such a serious thing to me that, that given a moment when that mind and heart are fully engaged, boom, I'm in prayer. I, I might not have my eyes closed. I might not have my hands together. I might not be in a, in a serious mode. It might be a great joyful mode. Have you ever prayed laughing? Those are some of the coolest prayers. Or crying. Sad, terrible, heartbroken times. Wonderful seasons of prayer. With someone, with the group, by yourself. James is saying, hey, your default needs to be prayerfulness. And then he, and he mentions somebody called the elders. I want to take a moment and just talk about elders. I put in your notes um, a bunch of places where they are mentioned in our Bible. Uh, particularly, they, they start to crop up in the book of Acts. As Paul goes from place to place to place, starting new churches, and he's bringing young men who are preaching with him, Timothy, Titus, uh, Silas, Barnabas traveled with him for a while, and so on. But when, they, when they'd start a new church, let's say at the church of Ephesus, when he was getting ready to leave, he would, he would anoint men who had, had risen to the top, their spiritual lives had risen to the top in that in that congregation in that group in that church and he had trained them he had spent time with them he had he had given them the benefit of everything he knew about how to to preach and teach about jesus and he would leave them usually in a plurality more than one 
and they would become the leadership of that church. So if you go through the book of Acts, you're going to see elders, plural, being planted uh, in, in, in the churches as he moves uh, through Asia Minor and, and, and Greece. And then when he gets to, to the book of Titus, he starts to outline exactly how these, these elders are to behave. What, what are the qualifications for them? What, are they, what do they look like? What, what, what do we need to know about their character? Um, he's, he's saying when they're sick, we invite the elders of the church, those that are in leadership, those who, who are, are presumably uh, some of those who are in prayerful mode at all times, we invite them to come and anoint someone with oil. Now, anointing with oil is an interesting thing in the Bible, too. It was always a physical sign that something that was being anointed or someone that was being anointed had been set aside by God, saying a consecration, consecration, he was consecrating them, setting them aside. Another word would be, would be sanctification, sanctifying them, set them aside, put them in a special category. So when they anointed with oil, it was a sign of something very special. Uh, kings were always anointed. David was anointed to become king. By the way, Saul was anointed as well. Um, prophets, most of the prophets were anointed. Uh, in, in Psalm 105, it talks about the prophets being anointed ones. It's very interesting. The oil that was used in this anointing actually has, has a recipe. And I had never seen this before until I did this lesson. So I put it in your notes. I don't know that you necessarily have to go make this oil, but I just thought I'd tell you how they did it. It's in Exodus chapter uh, 30. But what I want you to see here is, is, is uh, the oil itself was a picture of something. Often in the Old Testament, oil was a picture of the Holy Spirit. So when these, when these elders, these spiritual leaders, came to pray for someone and they anointed them with oil, the prayer that they were hoping God would answer and, and provide a miracle with was, was captured in a, in, a, in a whole setting. We have spiritual leaders. We have oil that's been uh, set aside, a special kind of oil. And then there is the prayer of, of these people that this person would be healed. In our culture, sometimes it's come down to, oh, all you need is a couple of drops of this special whammy oil. Guys, the, the power, the significance is not in a couple of drops of oil. The, the, and, it, and it's not even in the person who's doing the praying. In fact, very specifically, look at verse 15. What is, where is the power in all of this? Look at verse 15. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. Wait a minute, don't, don't stop. The Lord will rise them up. This isn't some person that has some special juju, special whammy, some special something another. And it's not an oil that has some special something another. It is, it is the Lord using spiritual leaders, anointing as a sign, a symbol of, of this consecration that he's asking for so that this person in our prayer might be held up before God and God in his gracious mercy might heal them. Now in verse 16, he adds a, another element to this concept of the prayerfulness. He says, confess your faults one to another. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. 
Confess your faults one to another. That's an interesting concept. And um, I dug up a quote from good old Martin Luther. I love this. He says, we have a strange confessor. His name is one another. Now, let me give you a little historical background. He was, of course, a Catholic priest and very frustrated with the way the Catholic Church was behaving, especially during the Middle Ages. And he's looking at this verse going, wait a minute. I'm supposed to go to this priest and tell him all my sins? No, 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 no. We have a very strange confessor. And that strange confessor is one another. Now, is, is James saying that my good friend Linda here sitting in the front, that I'm supposed to go to Linda's house and say, hey, Linda. Here is my list of sins that I did this last weekend. Would you please give me some zippy whippy whammo and forgive me? No. But what he is saying is, isn't it wonderful that we have the one another's? And when we are struggling, when there is issues in our lives, we can pick up the phone. We can call someone and say, will you please help me? Will you please pray with me? Will you please hold me accountable? I am, I am honestly struggling in this area. I'm not expecting Linda to do one of these on me. I'm expecting Linda to go, it's not so good, Sherry. You need to cut that out. And I'm going to be praying for you now and every day, and I want you to check in. I want to know. Let's keep praying about this. Let's find some verses to memorize. Let's hold each other accountable. Let's not let this go by casually. Confess your faults one to another. The one another's are so important. I put just a few of them down in your notes. Ephesians 4, forgive one another. Galatians 6, and we're going to talk about uh, verse 1, but verse 2 says, carry one another's burdens. I know Linda well enough to know that if I did share a, a burden with her, something that I, I needed to clean up in my act, in my life, I know that she would carry that burden. She would help me carry it. She would think about it. She'd pray about it. She'd try to help me with it. Luke 17 says we're to rebuke and then repent and then, and then forgive and repeat. Sometimes we have to go to a friend and say, hey, that's not cool. Stop that. This is, not, this is not doing your testimony any good, your family's testimony any good. So, you know, a little rebuke. The person repents. They get forgiven by the Lord. Boom, on we go. Till the next time. And then in Galatians 6, 1 that we're going to talk about in a minute, we restore such a one. So prayerfulness, guys. Prayerfulness between us and the Lord on an automatic, everyday, default kind of basis. But also prayerfulness as in involving others. Letting them come alongside you. Whether it's elders in your church or just people that you respect. People that you want in your life. People that you need counsel from and encouragement and support. And, and, and maybe a good kick, swift kick in the posterior too. All of that can come from the one another's. All right, and James hits our, our fourth one in verses 19 and 20. He's going to talk to us about being diligent in service. He says this, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring that person back. Remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. 
if we should wander, if we should lose our way, if we move around aimlessly, if we lose track of our spiritual moorings, what is God's job? Well, if we confess, 1 John 1, 9, then he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's God's job. And, and when we do that, when we bring it in confession, we've wandered, we've gotten off track, we're not the person we're supposed to be, and as believers we know it, we bring it back in confession to God. What happens then? He starts to do his job, or I put it in your notes, as his will. He blots out those sins. And then he moves those sins as far as east is from west. How far is that? It's forever apart. Micah says he pardons us. He doesn't just let us out of jail. He pardons us. So if, if God does that when we confess our sin, and he does, what should believers do? Well, here's what we do. Oh, did you see? She's back in church. I thought they uh, told her to, yeah, because of that. Yeah, I mean, he was here too. I don't know. What the, why are those two? I don't think they should be back. Do you think they should be back? Well, I heard. That's what we do. One, one, one writer said, you know, the Christian army is the only army that shoots, the, you know, the, the fellow people in the army in, in the back. We do. Oh, she had a lot of problems. I stay away from her. That is not the message James is leaving with us. James is saying, wait a minute, if, if somebody's wandering off, get in there and roll up your sleeves and help them. Because you wander too. Do you not? I will raise my hand first. Anyone else wander? Come on. I love the one waving in the back. I love it, I love it. Don't you love it when some comes, someone comes along and says, mm, loving on you, caring for you, praying for you. If I can help, let me know. And there's some help. A way, to, a way to address it. We're all broken. We got pieces hanging everywhere. The Christian that makes it sound like they got it all together, they don't. They're lying through their teeth. Nobody does this side of glory. And what James is saying, we need to be quick. I want you to turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Paul wrote this to the church at Galatia, churches in Galatia, a region, an area. And when he was getting ready to finish off his book in chapter 6, he, could, he comes up with a very uh, important statement. Galatians chapter 6, verse number 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you, you, you also may be tempted. But wait, 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 what is this? You catch somebody in a sin, what are you supposed to do? Restore them gently. You who are spiritual, you who are mature, you who know what it's like to be broken, you who know what it's like to, to, to wander away from time to time, you gently put your arm around someone and say, how can I help? What can I do? Let me help you. And watch out because, you know, there might be the opportunity for you to fall into sin as well. I, 
I've often said to the Lord when he will tap me on the shoulder and ask me to do something I don't want to do, I will, uh, this is my retort. Why do I have to be the one? You know, you go suck it up and say sorry first. Why do I have to be the one? You, you want to know the answer to that is, why do I have to be the one? Because he was the one. Because he went to the cross on my behalf. Because he's the one who gently restores me. Do I not, as a spiritual being, have a responsibility? I do. And he says back in James at the very, very end that we're supposed to cover somebody's sin with love. There is no sin anyone could or would ever do that's any more heinous or bad or horrible than any I or you will ever do. So why would we rank them? I'm okay hanging around her as long as she stays in this range of sin. But if she gets to this range of sins, whoa. Really? Restore such a one if you are spiritual and help cover someone else's sin with love. First Peter says this, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. You know that with your children. When you were raising your kids, if you always nailed them for everything they did, what happened to your relationship? Gone gone rules without relationship nothing what we need is this love covers a multitude of sins there are times when you go mm. there are times when you correct there are times when you instruct james is right on the money here as he's finishing out this very practical book giving us these four things that we got to do he ends up with hey guys Make certain, make, make, make sure, put your focus on this idea of being in service to others, especially those that are broken around you. I got to tell you, we live in a, a, in a world of hurt. People are a mess. And COVID didn't help because we all went to our corners. Satan loves it when we're alone. When we're alone, sin just gets to... What's that stuff in the Petri dish that grows the germs? What is it? Agar, that's the word. Well, aloneness is the agar of sin. When we're tucked away by ourselves, the stuff just grows. And we're coming out of what, 15, 16 months of people hiding? And there's a lot, of, a lot of heartache in our world right now. We need to be the people that James is calling us to be. Get out there, put our arms around some people, and cover a multitude of sins. So I ended this lesson and really with this mindset for the whole book, James, James wants us to be a warrior for Christ. Now you know I was uh, born in a military family and I especially love the Navy SEALs. So anything I can read or see or find out about them, I'm fascinated with them. Um, I was watching Lone Survivor yesterday on TV. Uh, I've seen it only times. Um, anything having to do with the Navy SEALs really fascinates me. Two phrases they use very often. One phrase is, the only easy day was yesterday. Meaning, you know, just bring it on, bring it on. But the one that fascinates me about their character, about their mindset, about how they can endure what they endure is this. They say this, all in, all the time. All in, all the time. I think that's what James is finishing his book off with. 
He's looking at you and I as warriors for Christ, and he's calling us to be all in all the time. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this book. Thank you for this opportunity to study it, think about it, try to apply it in my own life. And Father, the opportunity to share it with others. Make us be warriors for Christ, all in, all the time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you for coming. It would most definitely have been no 